Welcome to another episode of the TalkScript Podcast. Today I'm joined by fellow SitePen engineers James Milner. James, you want to say hello? Hello. My name is James Milner. I'm a software engineer at SitePen and I'm working remotely from London. That explains the accent. <laughs> and we're also here with Brian Forbes. Brian, would you like to say hello? Yeah, my name is Brian Forbes. I'm a senior software engineer at SitePen. I'm working here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, across the state from our host, Nick. Yes, and I'm Nick Nisi from Omaha, Nebraska, and we are joined by a special guest. Please welcome Jason Palmer to the podcast. Jason, would you like to say hello? Oh, I'm joining you guys from my house in Connecticut. Excellent. And you are not a SitePen employee. You actually work at a company that maybe a few people have heard of. It's uh, it's called what? Spotify? Spotify? It's close. Yeah, Spotify. Right. <laughs> Cool. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Spotify. Cool. So I've been at Spotify for seven years this November. Currently, I'm the product manager, technical product manager of a web infrastructure team in New York. So it's uh, more or less our job to try to create some shared tooling for all of the web devs at Spotify to try to make them faster, better, stronger. Cool. So have you always been working like in the web infrastructure team or is that something you kind of like moved into or like how did that kind of transition happen? This is a, a relatively new thing for me. I, I've been an engineer at Spotify. I was hired as an engineer back in 2011, sort of a couple of months after Spotify uh, was available in the States. Yeah, I've always been an engineer for a little while, sometime in like 2013, I think. I was a manager for about a year, what we call a chapter lead at Spotify. But then I went back to engineering. I sort of felt like that wasn't my thing. Now my role is a relatively new thing. We started back in January. I kind of... Uh, really wanted to create this team. I felt strongly about it. I felt like I could contribute a lot of things. And thankfully, they let me do that, which is super cool of them. Now that's what I do. So you said you, you created this team. What all, do they, what all do they do? Well, yeah, generally speaking, we just try to create a lot more shared tooling. So to give you some context, Spotify has about 150-ish web developers spread across four offices. So we're primarily in New York, primarily in Stockholm, but then we also have devs in London and San Francisco. Up until the web info team was created, there just wasn't a whole lot of like shared tooling. I mean, you know, in a very general sense, there wasn't a whole lot of even like node modules, for instance, that we kind of, that each team would make use of. There's a few here and there, but there wasn't really any team that was kind of like, you know, it was their job to try to specifically make web teams more productive or more effective. So it, it kind of has been up until relatively recently that each web team or each team developing a web product had to sort of figure out, you know, how they want to structure it. And, and so there, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility. There still is. But now at least a lot of these teams have some options to use some pre-built tooling, which I think is helpful. Mm -hmm. You've basically put together a framework, so to speak, an internal framework or toolkit or tooling so that people aren't spinning their wheels making decisions. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, probably our, our biggest initiative in early 2018 was to try to get folks using a common CI platform, and we've largely succeeded at that. And now it's kind of our goal to just, you know, create a recommended kind of tool set for 
folks, right? So if we want to break it down in the categories that, you know, it might be, it's, it, I'm not going to get at the level of like saying, okay, everybody has to use React. I'm never going to make that statement at Spotify. But what I would say, for instance, is, you know, you should probably use XYZ tool for monitoring or error logging, or you should use, you know, ABC tool for logging events to our backend, right? Things like this. And making sure that documentation is up to date and where it does make sense for us to have shared tooling, just making sure that it's well tested and updated and works with sort of modern, you know, web uh, stacks, that sort of thing. And I guess like the benefits of that must be, you know, like several fold because of things like, you know, you have multiple teams and if they're all using the same things, then it's quite easy to, you know, do things like onboarding and documentation and Mm-hmm. Having that consistency must be quite a, a benefit in terms of just like velocity and being able to actually be productive, right? It can be, yeah, for sure. But, you know, we don't force anybody to use any any particular tool, right? So if, if you're building a web product at Spotify and you want to go a totally different route to allow yourselves to move faster or to experiment on new things, you totally have that flexibility. So we kind of take like the golden path approach we define what recommended tooling and what and how and how we recommend you build things and along the way we're going to support that quite a lot so you're going to get sort of implicit support by going this way and hopefully we make that golden path so good that everybody wants to use it that this is you know an attractive option but also you will get a lot more support so you're not going to have for have to have for instance eight people on a team just to support your kind of bespoke creation. It gives the ability to have smaller, faster teams that can kind of deliver things and not have to support a ton of custom tooling. Yeah, for sure. And so like how many people work on your team at the moment with web infrastructure? Right now we're a team of four. I still code kind of as part of it, which is pretty cool, but we also do embeds quite a lot. So this is kind of something that is a really cool thing that we're doing. So when the team was first created in January, we were only two people, myself and one other engineer. And so we, we had to do embeds. We had to kind of get people from other teams to to work with us for a couple of weeks to help us build the things that we want to build. And so it was necessary back then. But then uh, even as the team staffed up and we got to the size that we're at now, we realized that it's just such a good idea. I mean, if you're if if the whole goal of this team is to try to build tooling for web teams at Spotify, it really just makes a whole lot of sense to have those teams or have people from those teams come and help us build it. That way, you know, you're building something that is actually useful and you get that feedback on a hourly basis, whether you're building the right thing or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. So can you talk a bit about maybe something you've worked on recently with like the web infrastructure team and kind of how maybe you brought some sort of shared tooling to some of the teams at the web team at Spotify? Yeah, sure. I mentioned the first thing that we started working on was trying to get web systems on a common CI platform. So back in January, when the team first started, when the web infrastructure team first started, I would say most web teams at Spotify just use Jenkins, and Jenkins is great. I have no issue with Jenkins at all, but it's another one of those things that a team has to maintain. So if I'm a web team back in January and I'm developing a web system, 
part of my development once I get the basics of this web system down is I, you know, I want to be able to set up CI. I want to be able to set it up to where when I submit a pull request, it runs my automated tests and it builds things and it does whatever is necessary for that web system. And it just becomes one of those things that a team has to figure out how to do it, how to provision a server, how to, you know, give the whole team access to it. It it kind of becomes, you know, like each team needs to have DevOps experts more or less to be able to do such things. You know, we can't just use Travis, for instance, right? Like you can with open source projects. So it was kind of our goal to have a common CI platform so that people can kind of have the experience like you get with Travis or like you get with Circle CI for open source work where you just plug it in, you know, you have a YAML file in your project root and it just works. And so we have a, a, an internally developed CI platform that we call Tingle. And it is, you know, similar in in spirit to uh, like a Travis or something where you have a YAML file that is at your project root and you declaratively define build steps. And if you're at all familiar with Google Cloud Builder, it's very similar to that in the sense that each build step is invoking a Docker image. And so it's calling Docker run on something. So that's a, and basically each, each Docker image, we call them action containers. Uh, Google Cloud Builder calls them Cloud Builders. And the point is, is that each of these Docker image just has one entry point. So it does one specific thing. So there, for instance, if you look at the open source Cloud Builder repo, there's a NPM and a Yarn action container, right? And so it's very clear what this thing is meant to do. There's one for curl. So now if you need build steps and you want to kind of compose your your CI automation, you would do so by stitching together these action containers or these cloud builders. That's kind of the first win that we got. We, we worked with a few big web projects and got them on board with this new platform and fixed a bunch of bugs along the way, sort of built support for web on these systems. Uh, this common CI platform was initially built primarily for backend systems at Spotify, backend Java systems. We built support for web. So we built the initial kind of uh, Spotify specific action containers. We, I contributed a few of the cloud builders to the open source Google Cloud Builders projects. And so through that and through good documentation and through embedding with a bunch of big web project teams, we were able to kind of roll this out and then it started to grow organically. And so now we're at a place where roughly 70% of active web systems at Spotify are using this common CI platform. Do you use that just for CI or do you use that for deployments as well? We use that for CI, although you can automate deployments with it. So for deployments, we tend to use a system that we call Tugboat. And again, it's an abstraction on top of you know some open source uh, deployment tech, right? So uh, Spotify came out and open sourced uh, a thing called Helios. A lot of systems at Spotify use Helios for deployment. It's kind of a new thing that we're sort of moving towards Kubernetes for deployment. And Helios and Kubernetes are both relatively similar to one another. The whole concept behind it is that you create a Docker image and then you deploy that thing to someplace. So both Helios and Kubernetes will sort of allow you to follow that model. So with Tingle, you're able to easily build these Docker images as part of your CI automation and deploy them to staging environments or deploy them to production, whatever it may be. Or if you're not comfortable with sort of doing continuous deployment, we do have a system where you can kind of point and click and say, okay, I want to deploy this particular change. I want to deploy this particular SHA to production or to staging. So you can either manually promote or you can do so with automation. 
And so with the deployment aspects that you mentioned, continuous deployment, and is that something that's kind of quite common throughout Spotify in terms of you know doing continuous deployment or is it kind of on a case by case basis or what's the kind of approach there? I would say it's pretty common. So as part of uh, WebInfra, we, we put together some dashboards because we wanted to try to measure this and get baselines as to where Spotify is. This is definitely something, you know, full transparency that I'm trying to promote more at Spotify. Turns out after we created these dashboards to figure out where we're at, it turns out roughly 80% of all Spotify systems uh, continuously deploy. And so what, what that means and how we define it within these dashboards is that if you merge a pull request to master or any commit that goes to master, uh, you go straight to production with that. So roughly 80% of Spotify systems do that. To do that or to be able to have that kind of ability, I'm assuming you must have like quite a rigorous uh, approach to kind of automated testing and, and overview of your code and, and making sure that there's, it has like it's in uh, the integrity of the code, right? Yeah, I would say so. I've seen a lot of trends during the seven years at Spotify, for sure. And I think that over the years, we've definitely gotten a lot better, generally speaking, at automated testing. And uh, where we're at now, I would say, you know, there's definitely a culture of testing at Spotify. I wouldn't say that every team sort of pair programs and practices strict TDD like uh, as they go. Some teams definitely do, but that's, that's not a requirement. What I will say and what I can say generally is that pretty much every team and every system has automated tests. And I would say most teams require tests or at least an explanation of why tests aren't possible for each pull request. So anybody can contribute to any system at Spotify. So I could go and submit a pull request to any system at Spotify, but it's generally expected that I write tests as part of that. Very cool. So you mentioned that, that Spotify has, you said, close to 150 web developers. Is that a like a majority of, of the type of development that's done at Spotify? I know, obviously, there's a big backend component to it as well, and you mentioned that's in Java. But I've always heard that the Spotify client itself is a web app in itself. Is that is that correct? Well, the, the desktop app largely is. The mobile apps are, are not. Okay, yeah. And that's cool, because uh, that was, the desktop app was was built with web technologies kind of before... Uh, things like Electron came out. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. When the desktop app first came out and even up to around the time I joined, it was mostly a C++ code base. But then I think sometime after I joined, I'm not sure exactly when, it started to kind of transition to being a largely web system. They wanted to be able to sort of test out new features and, uh, you know, do experimentation a little bit faster. And um, so we, uh, we use a system called Chromium Embedded Framework. And uh, we have uh, Marshall, who is a, a huge contributor of Chromium Embedded Framework that works at Spotify. I think he spends half of his time sort of working on that and half working directly on the desktop client. So we, we sort of have the best person in the world to uh, help us with that. The desktop app is, is a big web app for sure. And with regards to the desktop app, obviously having uh, being web-based, is there um, any crossover between the web player and the desktop app? Like, do they share components or do they share any kind of business logic or services? It's been a little while since I worked on desktop. I worked on desktop for a combined three years, like on our advertising platform and then on a separate infra team that was focused mostly on testing and uh, build tooling. So... I couldn't really say conclusively, but yeah, there are definitely shared components and shared services between the two. I just don't know exactly how many. 
Yeah, for sure, that makes sense. And they are they are actually the web player team and the desktop team are sort of in the same product area. So a product area would be sort of a collection of squads that are working on similar things. So those teams sit very close to one another in Stockholm and, you know, as such are able to collaborate pretty closely. I'm trying to think how, how I want to ask this question, because earlier you mentioned that part of your job was, was putting together generic ways to build products. You've got two big products, the, the web player and the, the desktop, that would seem to share similarities to each other. I would imagine that some of that genericizing would somewhat go away between the two teams because you would want them to, to use similar paradigms, similar libraries. How does what you're doing work out between teams like that? Or is, the, is that generic framework type stuff, maybe not framework, is that uh, spread out more throughout the company rather than distributed between those two teams? Well, does that make sense? I think it makes sense. Yeah. So I guess you're you're trying to ask if how much of the shared tooling that we're developing is being used by teams like the web player and desktop client. Yeah, yeah. So at the moment, I would say not that much, but uh, probably some of the stuff that we're going to be doing in Q4 and in Q1 will have a little bit more of an impact. And it's mostly because, you know, the web player and the desktop app are, they've been around a long time. They're developed by teams that's kind of, uh, you know, have particular needs for CI and for testing and things like this. And uh, so it's sometimes difficult, I think, to create tooling that is going to apply to sort of Spotify.com and the desktop client, for instance, right? These are sort of two very different use cases. But yeah, that said, you know, it's it's, uh, probably going to happen more in Q4, Q1, etc. What I will say is that I think the yeah, actually, I'm sure that the web player uses the common CI platform, Tingle. So that's a nice win for, for sure. The desktop client is uh, currently unable to use that. They, they basically have to be able to, you know, build native binaries for right, you know, right. Linux and Windows and Mac. And because of that need, CI environments are, are complicated. A little more difficult. Like yeah, for sure. Yeah. And with regards to testing, is that something that you have like are related to or is testing normally left down to the the teams themselves so like do you ever say like here's a testing framework that we would suggest or would you just say use what works for you i would say both generally speaking we uh we take the golden path approach at spotify where we define what what we sort of agree is a good way forward uh, a good starting point right and so this would involve how are you bundling your code, how are you testing your code, how are you doing CI/CD, et cetera. It kind of go, how are you monitoring? Sort of all of those touch points. Uh, so for for testing, uh, for sure, what we have in the Golden Path is we recommend that you use Jest for as much of your testing as possible. Your unit tests certainly, your integration tests certainly. We even have a recommendation for end-to-end tests to use Jest plus Puppeteer. That's going fairly well. But again, teams have different needs, so. For end-to-end testing, for instance, some teams are using Selenium or WebDriver, or they're going and doing full browser stack testing, or they have needs for sort of screenshot diffing and things like that. So that's an area where there's some divergence for sure, but teams have different needs. So one thing that we're really big fans of is typed JavaScript, and more specifically TypeScript. Has that infiltrated Spotify at all? 
Somewhat, I would say. There is kind of a, um, a group, myself included, that is trying to get it more widely used. I'm a big fan as well, although I don't have tons of experience with it personally. My main experience with typed JavaScript has come from contributing to the Yarn repo and to the Jest open source project. Uh, both of those are, are typed systems, and I believe they use Flow, but I'm a huge fan. I've definitely seen the benefits of it, but uh, I don't have strong opinions personally about which one is better than the other. But uh, yeah, I, I think generally having types allows you to do really powerful things. You know, you, have, you can generally have less unit tests, for instance. I mean, a lot of the unit tests that people typically write are to sort of test compatibility of function calls and things like that. And, and you kind of get a lot of that just, you know, in your editor straight away if you're using typed systems. The other thing that I think is really cool about it and what I personally have benefited from is when I'm looking at a complex code base like Yarn or a complex code base like Jest and I want to add a feature or I want to fix a bug, me as like a, you know, when I was a new contributor to Jest, for instance, I was able to dive right into the code and just kind of like do a search in my IDE for like the thing I was looking for. And then now I'm just in the thick of it. I'm in some file somewhere looking at some function. And because of the type system and the IDE integration, I'm able to have a really good understanding of how this function comes into play. You know, certainly like what what it's expecting for input arguments and what it's expecting in output arguments. And, you know, uh, yeah, when you I make it- You don't have to guess anymore. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And, and most importantly, when I make a change somewhere, I'm able to know right away because things are read in my IDE that, that I've messed something up somewhere else. So I got to go and address that. Right. And so I've seen just such a huge benefit from that. I, I think it's a great way to be able to get people to contribute to systems that they're not that familiar with. And kind of one of the arguments against using type systems, maybe, I don't know for sure, but uh, it is you know, the learning curve associated with it. But I actually would go the opposite. I would say the opposite. And I would say that this will help you learn how a given system works faster. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of feel like when I'm writing with TypeScript alongside kind of the IDE integration, it's, I kind of feel like I'm writing JavaScript on easy mode. Like I'm just like, oh, you're kind of almost like telling me what I should be writing, if that makes sense. Like, because of the autocomplete and because of all the types and interfaces and so forth, it just, it almost feels easier. It feels like I'm cheating. Yeah, it's like, well, I, I'm, for example, I, if I write something, like normally I would have, if I wrote some JavaScript, I'd have to, you know, maybe refresh the page or even like run the tests. But with TypeScript, it's kind of like, like you were saying, you can kind of know if it doesn't compile, then there's not even any point in doing either of those two things, right? So it kind of makes you more productive, I feel. I agree, yeah. I've experienced a similar thing uh, with Python, just kind of in some of my stuff that I do on the side. I, I do some Python, and they've started adding annotations and stuff to Python. And that's, I don't feel like I can write good Python without the annotations anymore. And there's a tool called MyPy. Yeah, it's strong typing for Python. It's, it's awesome. And then with async await, they just added that in 3.6. It's very much like type, TypeScript. Again, with the async await, I feel like that's almost cheat mode as well, you know? Like, it really is. Yeah, I feel like... <laughs> almost be like, this is almost synchronous. Well, it feels like it's synchronous, right? Yeah, yeah. Jason, you mentioned that you are a contributor to a few projects. I think you mentioned Yarn and Jest uh, specifically. Tell us a little bit about that and how that differs from what you do day-to-day -day at, at Spotify. And, and also, do you do that like as part of your, your duties at Spotify, or is this kind of just on your own? I would say it's both. Most of what I've contributed 
I guess especially to to Yarn and to NPM when I did that. I haven't contributed to those two systems recently, but I think like within the last two years, I contributed to Yarn and NPM to basically fix bugs that we hit on our CI platforms. So we were really super early adopters of Yarn, for instance. Like we started using Yarn back when there was the first kind of stable-ish release, which was 0.16. And we started using it with like the desktop client and in web apps uh, super, super early. As such, you know, there were kind of some bugs and little things that needed fixing along the way. Uh, so where I could, I contributed bug fixes for that. And the same thing with NPM. When NPM 3 came out, there was uh, this really funny bug where, um, you know, you're all familiar with the N- NPM scripts and being able to have like pre and post scripts, right? So when NPM 3 came out, your pre scripts would run after your script so it, it would it would run like so when when you if you had a pre-install script for instance it would run after install which kind of broke some stuff for us and uh for some reason nobody was nobody was fixing this bug like for a really long time in npm3 and then finally i um i just i fixed it uh, it took me a couple of you know attempts and in in some back and forth with the npm team and they're fantastic and uh they were able to kind of guide me through and yeah, I fixed that. That was cool. And um, it's almost—it's almost like they needed some unit tests. Yeah, maybe they actually have so they actually have really really good testing on on npm. I would say it takes a little while to kind of like get familiar with that code base. And again, I, I haven't looked at it recently, so I, I can't comment too much on that right now. But uh, these days, I mostly contribute to to Jess. So um, I was. Uh, you know, gratefully added to the to the Jess core team recently, a couple of months ago. It's an awesome team. I mean, super cool people on that team. Just a great project to work on. And again, Spotify was like a really early adopter of Jest. I don't know if you remember when Jest first came out, it had uh, auto mocking turned on by default. We were trying it like around that time. And at that time, we pretty quickly determined it wasn't going to work for us because that was kind of a deal breaker. Soon after that, we, we started really adopting it very quickly at Spotify. Yeah, I guess recently, so when I was working on the desktop team, sort of doing a test infrastructure work specifically for that team, like build and test infrastructure work, we were building some systems where we needed JUnit files. So if you're if you're familiar, so kind of any CI platform that you run your tests on, whether it be CircleCI or Travis or whatever, one thing that they all kind of have in common is that they understand what a JUnit.xml file is. So if you run your test and you generate one of these files, you're going to suddenly have that feedback in your pull request and you're going to have test summaries and stuff like that in any of these platforms that will sort of tell you, okay, you know, here's how long these tests took to run. Here's the ones that passed, ones that failed, etc. So I wrote kind of a, a JUnit. Originally, it was a test results processor for Jest, and it became kind of the one that everyone started using. It's just called Jest JUnit. I wrote that initially so that we could kind of use it uh, on our CI platforms for for desktop. And uh, then, you know, I open sourced it and it kind of took off. Now you could use it as both a test results processor or as a reporter, and we recommend to use it as a reporter. But yeah, a couple of months ago, the the Jest folks reached out and they asked me if I would move Jest JUnit to the Jest community uh, organization which sort of holds, you know, some watch plugins and uh, IDE integrations and really cool stuff like that, sort of community contributed projects that have uh, 
done well. I added that there. Then I've contributed a lot of things to to just recently. I added the ability to do uh, test retries, for instance. So that's a cool feature to kind of you know help you with uh, if you have any test flakiness issues. It gives you the ability instead of just failing an entire CI run, you could say, okay, well we know this test is flaky sometimes. Try it three times before we fail, for instance, right? It gives you the ability to do that. So these are some of the things I've contributed recently. That's really cool. I, I feel like Jest seems to have become quite a like an incredibly popular testing framework. It seems to have just kind of, because I know kind of like Mocker and Chai were very popular for an extensive period of time, but I see Jest kind of just popping up more and more everywhere now. And I don't know if maybe that's just something to do with the user experience or, you know, the quality of the, the actual tool itself. But yeah, it seems to have like a lot of very cool features. Like for example, when we when we use it on one project, and like it will when you rerun the test, it will run the test that failed first, or the failing test, it will run those first. If that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, it's just like a lot of really nice things that are good for kind of that developer experience. I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of the main reasons why I liked it a lot, and why I started recommending everybody at Spotify use it. A few reasons. One is it was really fast for uh, kind of like large test suites. So if you have, you know, web apps like the desktop app that has thousands of unit tests and, and, you know, lots of integration tests and things like this, you could see a tremendous amount of speed improvements by by using Jest. So it's kind of a no-brainer. The other thing is that Jest does a really good job at trying to isolate each test from one another. So it's surprisingly easy with most testing platforms to make one test dependent on another test. And and so suddenly, without realizing it necessarily, you're in a situation where you have to run the tests in a particular order, otherwise it's going to fail. And Jest has a lot of things in place which tries to prevent that from happening which is really cool. Those were kind of the main two reasons why I liked it. And, and the other, obviously, is that Facebook is, is backing it. And as such, there's a lot of contributors and there's a lot of community projects. There's you know a lot of excitement around anything that Facebook builds, especially for web. And so if they're pushing it and there's a community behind it, this means I'm way more likely to get the support that I need if uh, something goes wrong or if I need something added. So I think um, those are the main reasons we went with Jest. Yeah, that's really cool. You mentioned some of the safeguards to prevent tests from relying on one another. Can you give an example there? I'm trying to think of what the tool could do. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I guess I can give a theoretical example. So let's say I've got a test suite and I have sort of two individual tests within this one test suite, right? And then let's say that first test Somewhere in the test, either through an include or through, you know, the test itself, it does global.foo equals bar, right? And now somewhere else, this next test, if it's asserting on global.foo, for instance, right, this is an area where tests can get tripped up, right? Now suddenly we're in a place where maybe that second test relies on global.foo being a particular value because that first test set it and because the test framework allowed me to do that. What Jest does is each individual test suite gets a separate VM. So it's essentially run in a separate child process. It's called, there's a sub package of Jest called Jest Worker, which allows you to have this functionality in any project you want. You could use this outside of Jest and it's really cool. This is kind of like what isolates individual test suites from one another. 
which is really cool. And then between each test itself within a test suite, it tries to reset the global environment so that you can't kind of have shared state in between the two. There's still cases in Jest where, where you could do that if you really try hard, but they do kind of have this tooling in place to try to prevent this situation. And then there's also things in Jest I can't remember what it is exactly, but I, I'm pretty sure there's a way in Jest where you can kind of randomize the order that tests are executed. And also you get somewhat of a randomized order, like you were saying before, where if a test has failed before, or if a test took a really long time to run, Jest kind of prioritizes the order that it runs the tests in order to make them complete as fast as possible. Uh, and, and so you kind of end up in a situation either by in, explicitly saying run them in a random order or just by simply developing software you kind of get in a less and less of a situation where tests are always run in the same order Uh, and and so between this and between the kind of vm you know sandboxing you are far less likely to run into this situation as you might be with other test frameworks yeah that's really cool i was wondering if it was some kind of like randomization of of individual tests uh, but i didn't consider the vm isolation as well that's really cool and I would guess as well if they're saying that it's kind of running these tests in isolation and in workers even that you that maybe allows for some sort of parallelization because there's no shared state you can be sure that a test can run on its own without necessarily needing a order or side effects or state or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the benefit for sure. And so the sort of flip side of that is that if you have a very small test suite, just might actually be a little slower than Mocha, for instance because it's going to run each test kind of in a separate process. And there is some kind of expense to be paid by spawning this process and, you know, managing that communication between the test runner and these individual processes. So just is, is going to be hugely beneficial if you have, you know, medium to large test suites, but you might actually notice it being a tad slower for smaller test suites. But what I would say is, I would much rather wait an additional 30 seconds for my tests to pass than, you know, because I get so much else uh, with this, you know, the community, the, the sort of test isolation, you know, uh, the, pro, a lot of the pros, tooling. the pros yeah. outweigh the cons for sure. I would say so for sure. Yeah. And I would guess as well, like on average, te- uh, you know, like code bases don't tend to get smaller, right? Yeah. Yeah. It tends to work that way. And so would you say, obviously you talked a bit about your contributions to NPM and Jest and Yarn. Is there any kind of other big projects within Spotify that have big open source kind of support, specifically maybe web or JavaScript projects? Let's see, we have, I'm just going to have to Google this really quickly just to make sure I get it right. <laughs> you know, you're the bit, you're, you're big time when you have to Google the, the things that are going on in your own company. Yeah, we definitely do a lot of open source stuff. I, I, I would say, you know, outside of JavaScript, we have Shio, which is uh, what you can use for like if you're doing data pipelines and stuff like that, which is hugely popular. Same goes for Luigi, which is really good for that. There's other projects. There are some for JavaScript, but I will say that we need to do more for JavaScript, and I think we will. I have something that I'm going to open source soon as part of my team, but I'm trying to look. We have like some charting library that's really very cool, but I can't find the name of that. What I could do is maybe send it to you afterwards. It's not like secretly D3 or something, is it? <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not sure. I haven't worked on it. That's why I'm not so familiar with it. I mean, I guess speaking of, of testing, it's not open source yet, but something that I intend on open sourcing relatively soon, once I can find the time to do it, is uh, so as part of the testing work that 
myself and others have done at Spotify, we came up with sort of a, a testing framework, as it were, that we call Cassette. It's specifically for helping you write integration tests in JavaScript. What it does very well, I think, is help you kind of write like UI-driven deterministic tests. So it's basically, if you're familiar at all with VCR testing, mm-hmm. it's a, basically a way to help you do that with Jest. And that's about as much as I can say about it right now. We intend on open sourcing it sometime in the next few months. So keep a lookout for that. Could you, for perhaps anyone who's listening, clarify what VCR testing is? Yeah, of course. So uh, VCR testing is pretty much, if you write a test that makes network requests, for instance, you could sort of make it such that you, you run the test in record mode and it will actually make the network request. It'll do just like it would do as a user using the system. And then any network requests are kind of recorded and written to file. And now when you're running this test on CI or when you're running this test, you know, most of the time, instead of it going to the network to satisfy these requests, it looks uh, and satisfies them by these files in the file system. So it's way faster. It sort of allows determinism more or less where you kind of get the same result each time that you run the test. Without the delay. Yeah, exactly. And this adds a lot of sort of stability to a test suite like this. And kind of the the motivation for going this route and attempting this experiment was that we noticed that a lot of teams would do very well at writing a ton of unit tests. And then they would sort of uh, not write a whole lot of integration tests or at least not consciously do it. And then as such, there would be a lot of end-to-end tests, a lot of Selenium-based you know, tests or browser stack or web driver, et cetera, which are great. But the issue with them is that they're, they're quite slow as once you start having more than 10 or 15 tests or something like that. And then they have the, the tendency to be flaky, whether you've, you could, you could write the best test in the world, but still because I'm hitting the network and because I have to, you know, negotiate with browsers and have separate processes and a lot of stuff is out of my control. And as such, it's a little flaky. So kind of our, our goal with, with going this route with cassette is to encourage people to try to write these UI tests, you know, using like JS DOM, using sort of the environment that Jest gives you, right? So unless you have a need for a particular browser environment or the need for doing screenshot diffing and things of that nature, you could test a tremendous amount of your UI and your business logic at a very high level. And we can help stabilize those types of tests by using VCR, by at least mocking out the network requests. Uh, So you don't have to necessarily, with a system like this, with VCR testing, you don't necessarily have to write individual mocks for every single network request, which will get out of date. You could instead, you know, have it make an actual network request to a live sort of production or staging environment. And these mocks, as it were, are created for you. And then if that thing goes down, you don't have to worry about your tests failing thereafter. Yeah, exactly. And and what a lot of teams do in situations like this to make sure that their VCR files are still up to date and relevant because that's a risk with doing VCR testing. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. It is they'll they'll you know, there's a few strategies to this. One popular strategy is uh, post-merge. So after you merge something into master, you could have a job on CI that will run your tests, but it will run them in record mode and it won't, you know, commit the VCR files to master or anything like that, but it will at least give you a signal. If this fails suddenly, you could say, okay, something might be broken here that we have to look at. That's one strategy. Another strategy, which uh, we haven't implemented in Cassette yet, but it's, it's sort of constantly on my thoughts. 
Ruby has a really uh, popular VCR framework. I think it's just called Ruby VCR. And they, they have the ability to give an expiration date for VCR tests. And so I think how that works is, let's say I, I set an expiration date for two weeks. You know, it's going to write some config file somewhere that you commit. And now once that two-week mark hits, if I haven't re-recorded, it won't let that test pass. It actually will force me to re-record these VCR files. So this is something I've considered adding, and maybe we'll add it at some point. But uh, yeah, there's this is sort of what I'm thinking about. For sure. And I think what you were saying about, you know, people write a lot of unit tests and a lot of end-to-end tests. And um, especially, I think, as end-to-end tests have got kind of easier to write with, you know, kind of more modern tools, is this integration, this kind of middle middle bit where mocking out like IO or network quests or whatever it might be is quite laborious. It's like it's quite a painful activity, especially if they have kind of like big interfaces and stuff. So that sounds like it would be something that would be really really useful in terms of yeah being able to like mock that out quickly yeah i mean my my nirvana as it were is to be able to write an end-to-end test an actual browser-based test and just have them be really fast and have them be a hundred percent stable because then that would be the only tests i write i would have typed javascript and then i would have a whole bunch of end-to-end tests i feel like this is the natural way of writing tests we're not there in my opinion. I, so I think we need kind of tooling like Cassette and there's other solutions, but this this at least kind of bridges that gap in some way and gets us a little further, I feel. For sure. I, th- I think, so I've been using Cypress fair amount recently and um, Cypress IO. And um, I definitely feel like that's a, having previous used end-to-end test frameworks in, in the past, I feel like that's definitely a step in kind of the right direction in terms of like, they, I almost feel like I'm writing unit tests. I'm just like, there is a button. I click on the button. It does something. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't, I, I feel like I have to worry less about like things being asynchronous or it just feels a lot kind of less verbose and, and, and painful. Yeah, it's it's on my uh, my personal backlog to, to look at Cypress. I, I, uh, I have not played around with it at all. But one thing that seems intriguing is that when I read the documentation for Cypress, they specifically say Cypress is not flaky. And what I say is challenge accepted. <laughs> I mean, no comment on my side. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just think the I feel like the the browser in general is there's like so many things that can go wrong. I just feel that it's kind of like a promise you can't make, right? There's right. You could. There's just a thousand and one states that you could be in at any one time. So yeah, and and fundamentally, JavaScript it's impossible for it to be deterministic, right? Like the whole micro task queue is specifically non-deterministic. That's the extent of my knowledge for that. So if you're looking for some smart, you know, retort, I I'm not going to be able to say more than that. But as far as I understand, the JavaScript engine itself just fundamentally is not going to be determin. Like you're not going to get the exact same, you know, state between each test run. So, you know, VCR systems and, and awesome systems like Cypress and Jest, we sort of, we, we help get us along the way to make the test as fast and deterministic as possible, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, uh, at least between, obviously different browsers will implement things in different ways. So I think, for example, I think it was like Safari and Edge used to put like request animation frame callbacks, like after the frame commits which obviously oh, right. doesn't make a huge amount of sense because the frame's already on the screen. So, But yeah, there's definitely, I think, that kind of issue of you have multiple browsers, you have accounting for that is difficult. And I guess with things like Jest, at least you know if it's running in Node, it's kind of you only have to account for one environment. 
That's true. Yeah. I mean, Jest does support different environments. You can actually create your own test environments, but the two that it ships with are Node and JS DOM. So you have that going into it, but you can create sort of custom test environments. So and custom test runners. So you can actually use it to write Python tests, for instance, or, you know, control a browser like Puppeteer. It seems like it's very powerful and you can do a lot of things with Jest by the, from, from what you have been saying. For sure. Yeah, it's an exciting project. Yeah, that's really cool. So thanks for, for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to plug while, while we have you? I don't think so. Check out Jest. Yeah. Did you say the, that library will be cassette? Uh, that's something I'll definitely be looking out for in the future. Yeah, for sure. Maybe the name will change. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, yeah, keep an eye out for the Spotify GitHub organization. Maybe my Twitter. So I'm Palmer J3 on Twitter. I'm sure I'm going to tweet something when that day comes when we open source it. Yeah, keep an eye out. Cool. Thanks so much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. We've got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.